Good morning, everyone. You can have a seat right where you're at. Thank you. Nice to see all of you. My name is Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff. I have the privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. And keep your Bible open in Amos if you don't have it there already. Maybe you've got one of our journals, or uh, there's a seat back Bible in front of you, or you can find this on your phone, that sort of thing as well. But we're in the middle of a study this summer called Who You Call in the Minor Prophets. So we've already, if you've been with us all summer, uh, you've already heard a two-week study of Hosea, a two-week study of Joel. Uh, We're on the second week of a two-week study in Amos, and then we'll have two more weeks uh, in Obadiah next week. Uh, Hopefully you read Amos this week. We talked about it last week, so you'd kind of be ready as we go. I'm not working through verse by verse. You can't really teach Amos like first half, second half. You kind of have to look at the overarching principles there. But um, next week when we get into Obadiah, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. So if you haven't read that one already, I mean, I don't know what you're doing with your free time. You got plenty of time to read Obadiah. So get that done. I also wanted to say really quick, how'd you do with the ropes this morning? You feeling all right? We put a couple of ropes in the back. We warned you last week we're going to do that. The back section is going to be roped off to get you a little bit closer to me. How many of you are feeling... Okay, you're feeling pretty frustrated, feeling angry, you take it out on the ushers a little bit, because we're talking about repentance this morning, so I'll get back to you in a minute, right? I'll get back to you in a second. We're looking at overarching, uh, the overarching views in Amos, and last week we looked at kind of the major theme in the book of Amos, which was this. God sends his prophet Amos, who was from the southern kingdom Judah of of God's people. Uh, He sends his prophet with judgment, a message of judgment, both for their neighbors, but then more specifically for the people of Israel themselves, and not just the northern kingdom, but Zion, all of God's people. And the message of judgment is this. He says, while your religious practice is fine, you're still singing your songs and you're still making your sacrifices and you're still offering your tithes, you're doing all that religious stuff, I'm judging you and you will be overthrown, not because you aren't doing churchy things, but because in the midst of all your churchy things, you've actually missed my heart, God says. He says, remember, I'm a deliverer and I'm a person who sets people free. I'm someone who cares for the oppressed and those who are enslaved. I'm somebody who cares about those. And you can see that by my conduct and the way I've led you. And yet you aren't replicating my character and my conduct in the midst of all your religious practice. You've missed my heart. And so Amos comes, remember the first two weeks, or excuse me, the first two chapters of the book of Amos are are a series of judgments. Then chapters three through six are a a sort of a collection of sermons that reiterate some of the same things. We'll look at pieces of that today. The last uh, three chapters, seven, eight, and nine, are a series of visions of the judgment that will be enacted. So there's visions of locusts and fire. There's a vision of... uh, of a bowl of ripe fruit, which doesn't sound very ominous, but then God goes on to say this bowl of ripe fruit is an indicator of how ripe you are for judgment, which is ominous then. And then the very last vision in chapter 9 is of the Lord at his altar. God is making it very clear that he is serious about this judgment, that it will come to pass, that it is not irrevocable, right? Or it is not revocable, that the punishment is coming to his people, and it does absolutely come. So last week we talked about the danger of being sort of uh, putting on a religious illusion that maybe brings you a little bit of comfort and makes you feel good about the fact that you're going through the motions, but the danger of missing the heart of God in the midst of that and that God holds us to a higher standard, to a higher expectation, right? That he looks at the people of Israel and he says, you're doing all these things, but you're treating people like property and you care more about your own personal profit than you do about the welfare of your, of your fellow man and woman. He says, this is not my heart, right? So he wants that to be corrected. Now, that was sort of the overarching emphasis of the book. We looked at that last week. As we look at a second emphasis and a sort of a second primary emphasis in the book of Amos, what I want to talk about this morning is the way we respond to God's correction. It's meaningful and worth noting 
and how cool it is that the God of the universe comes to correct his people at all. That throughout the story of the Bible and throughout the story of human history, God comes to correct his people and to let them know when they're off track and to let them know when they've lost sight of the things that are most essential. That God comes to correct them. And yet many times what we see, and we see evidence of this through the book of Amos, many times people's responses to God's correction are less than good. How about we say that? We don't, we don't like to be corrected. We don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't like to be told that the thing we're doing is not the right thing or that we're not doing it the right way. One of the commentators I read this week said of the book of Amos that it is a very difficult thing for religious people to accept that their religion is offensive to God. It's a very difficult thing for religious people to accept that their religious practice is an offense to God. Why? Because in some ways that religious practice, even if it's empty of the heart of God, is a comfort to us. It makes us feel like we're good people and it makes us feel like we're doing good things and it makes us feel like we're acceptable to God and other people. And many times inside a religious community, simply by going through the motions, whether you're revealing the heart of God or not, simply by going through the motions, you sort of get pats on the back or you can build up a little bit of accolade just for sort of maintaining a religious illusion. And religious people have a very difficult time hearing that their religion is offensive to God because it shatters that illusion and it means that they actually have to start paying attention to the things that God cares about. And that's hard for us to deal with. None of us like to be corrected. I mean, from the time we're little, I remember uh, my family, my wife and my young son, Jack, at the time, he's, he's in his 20s now, but he was little guy at the time. We were at Target, right? And we're chopping and doing a thing and we made the, the fatal error that a lot of young families make where you take your kid into the toy section, but you've no intention to buy anything, right? Have you done that? And you say to your kid, and this seems reasonable to you, I said to my son at the time, we're not shopping in the toy section, we're just browsing, right? Now you and I, we all know what the word browsing means, but your children don't understand browsing. And my son Jack I didn't understand browsing. We're looking at the toys and all of a sudden he goes, dad, I want that truck. And I was like, yeah, that's great. It's a nice truck. It's a cool little toy, you know, whatever. But we're not, we're not shopping today. We're just browsing. And he says, Dad, I want the truck. And I was like, again, I heard you. And don't raise your voice to me, please. And uh, like simmer down, right? Or you're going to be in trouble. Like don't talk to me that way. Uh, we're not buying anything. We're just looking today. We're just browsing. And he says, I want the truck. I want the truck. And I said, Jack. And now, by the way, have you ever been in Target? And you hear that one family that has the kid that's yelling? That's my family. Yeah, so we were there at the same time. That's funny. Um, anyway, coincidence. Uh, I say to Jack, if you keep yelling like this, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to take you out to the car with me and mom will finish all the shopping today. Like, we're not going to sit here and do this thing with you. And he goes, I want the truck. I want the truck. Give me the truck. So I, you know, I keep my word. I pick up my kid, right? And I start to carry him out. Now, of course, the toy section's at the back of the Target, right? So I got to walk all the way through Target with this screaming kid. I want my truck. Give me the truck. Buy me the truck. And then weirdly, about halfway through the Target, what he's yelling changes. He'd been yelling about how much he wanted the truck. We get about halfway through and he starts yelling, don't lock me in the car again. It's hot in the car. Kids die in cars. Don't lock me. Now, look, here's the thing. I've never locked that kid in the car, right? That's never happened. All of a sudden, I got all the people in Target looking at me like a child abuser. And all I'm trying to do is follow through with my word. Now... Why did that thing go down the way it did? It went down because from the very earliest days of our lives, we don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't like to be told we're doing it the wrong way. And we definitely don't like to be corrected for doing it wrong, right? When dad says don't and we keep doing it, we don't want the punishment that follows. That is true of all of human nature. And so it behooves us to pay attention to the warning signs of God and to pay attention to the way we respond to them. 
We are blessed to have a God who cares enough about us to correct our behavior. Now, it's worth noting, as well as we sort of dive into Amos here, and we're going to look at a bunch of different sections, but as we dive in, let me remind you, the reason why we pay attention to the correction of God is not that you and I today, who are followers of Jesus, need to be scared of his wrath. You don't need to be worried that if you disobey God, he's going to burn down your house or he's going to send locusts to eat your crops or I don't know how many farmers we've got, but you don't have to be worried about God's wrath, right? Because the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that the wrath of God, right? The wrath of God was placed on Christ. You and I don't have to be worried about God throwing lightning bolts from the sky and smiting us for our sin. The reason why we pay attention to sin as followers of Jesus The reason we pay attention to sin is that sin still has temporal consequences. And we talked about this last week. Our sin hurts us. And maybe more importantly, our sin hurts our fellow women and men. It hurts our community, right? When we live uh, with a life of greed or idolatry or selfishness or of sexual immorality, when we live a life that, that fails to glorify God, that causes pain and damage to us and to our community. Not only that, If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, the reason why you should repent of your sin or turn from it, that's all repent means, is because God created you for more than that, right? Jesus comes and he lives a sinless life. And in doing that, he sets an example for us of the epitome of what a human life can be. By always glorifying God in thought and word and deed and attitude, he gives us a model of the perfect human life. So why do we turn away from sin? Well, it hurts us and hurts other people. We turn away from sin because it fails to recognize the life that we were built for. It diminishes that. And then thirdly, if you're a follower of Jesus, why we repent of our sin is that we have been uniquely called to be ambassadors. So you and I are called to put Jesus on display in 2023 in our schools and in our workplaces and our families. I am the picture of Jesus to the people in my circle and sin that is pervasive and unrepented in my life. It absolutely distorts or destroys the image of Jesus. If people are looking at me to understand what Jesus is like and I'm living a life of selfishness or a a life of power hungriness or of perversion or whatever, that distorts the image of Christ. So While we don't have to fear the wrath of God because that's been placed on Christ, we absolutely should care about sin. God cares about sin. And he cares about the presence of sin in the life of his followers, so much so that he, on occasion, will send reminders to get back on track. The question isn't whether or not God will uh, send us these reminders to sort of uh, break up our religious illusions but whether or not we will respond to them with humility, whether we respond to them with repentance, whether we'll respond to them with honesty, right? Most of the time we hold on to our religious facades. The people in the book of Amos were frustrated with the message of Amos because they'd been living religious lives and they were satisfied with that religious life. I'll say there are some of you in the room today who have a religious illusion that you maintain. And that is partially your fault and partially it's that Christian communities have sort of encouraged you to maintain a Christian facade, right? There is a, uh, there is a positive reward for you to put on a mask that seems better than you actually are. And there is a negative reward for you to admit that you don't know some things or that you're broken or that sometimes you do the wrong thing or sometimes you're selfish or sometimes you're hateful or sometimes you're stupid, right? If you admit those things, many times inside a Christian community, you get a little bit of the side eye, right? And very quickly, if you've been in Christian community for any amount of time, you learn that it's better for you to keep up a mask of holiness, to maintain a religious illusion, because then no one judges you and they don't give you weird looks. And in fact, sometimes they'll pat you on the back or sometimes they'll tell you you're doing a great job. 
So there is sometimes inside religious communities, and this was certainly true for the people of Zion, there is a catalyst or a motivator to maintain religious facade because it's just sort of a way to get along with other people and not be judged. But what God is doing in Amos is he's trying to smash those masks, right? He's trying to smash those illusions. He's trying to take away the false security, the false comfort that comes with religious illusion. Because if you're pretending like you've got it all figured out, and if you're pretending like you never do anything wrong, and you're pretending like you've got everything going great for you, then there is no need for you to ever work on the face underneath the mask. Does that make sense? You get a really good mask and you learn how to keep it in place and you make sure everybody has seen it. You never have to do any work on your actual face because nobody sees your actual face. But the reality is that a Christian community, like a church, like Fullerton Free, should be a place where masks are not welcome and masks are not needed. This should be a place where you can be honest about what you know and what you don't know, about what you believe and what you don't believe. A place where you can be honest about your failures and your triumphs and be held in community equally regardless, right? A place then where with honesty and humility and transparency and vulnerability, all of those things... God can begin to transform the face underneath the mask, right? We take the mask away, and then the true self becomes transformed. Why? Because we've been honest about who we are. God's trying to break up and smash their religious facades, and they don't like that, right? We many times don't like that also. Now, let me say there's another kind of person in the room, and that's the kind of person sitting here today who has no religious illusion, right? So as I'm talking about it, you're like, that's not me, man. I am busted and everybody knows it and I don't pretend. And I'm just like, this is what you, if you're going to let me come to your church, it's going to be this mess, right? Well, let me say, it's a great thing that you don't have religious illusion. It's a great thing that you haven't cultivated a mask. It's a great thing that you've resisted the pressure to do so. The reason you need to pay attention to this theme in the book of Amos is so that you don't build a mask tomorrow. That you don't ever fall comfortable or at ease, as it says in Amos 6.1, at ease in your illusions in the days ahead. That you're always willing to walk in that position of honesty and vulnerability that says, you know what, God's transforming me, and on any given day, I got some great things that are happening, and I got some crummy things that are happening, and I'm trusting all of that to the grace and the mercy of God in community, right? That's who we want to be. So if you have a religious illusion, I would encourage you to think about what it's going to look like to turn loose of that as we look at Amos today. If you don't have a religious illusion, my encouragement would be to you, don't check out, but instead go, how do I make sure I never fall into that trap? Because it's very easy to start fashioning a mask inside a community of people who sometimes value that for for reasons that are very different than the heart of Jesus, right? So we look at Amos and we see that God is trying to correct the people, that God continues to try and correct us today too because our sin hurts us and others, because it mars the image of Christ, and it renders us into a life that is far less than God created us for. So God is going to try and get your attention. And when he does, you will have to make a determination about how you're going to respond to that. The people of God in the book of Amos respond in a couple of different ways. I want to look at three broad themes in the time we have this morning. And the first one is that sometimes when God is trying to correct us or he's trying to reprove us, when he's trying to change our behavior, sometimes we fail to respond to that because of ignorance. Ignorance is my first main heading today. And when I say ignorance, I don't mean it in the way that it can sometimes be colloquially used, where ignorance can kind of mean stupidity. I don't mean that you're stupid. I mean that you literally are ignoring the message that God is trying to send to you, that you you don't hear it, that you're unaware of it, right? Maybe it's helpful for the sake of our message today 
to think about, uh, as an illustration, think about the idea of driving down a road, right? You're driving down a highway, and all of a sudden you see one of those big orange flashing signs on the side of the road, right, that Caltrans puts up. And flashing on the sign, it says, warning, bridge out ahead, right? Warning, bridge out ahead. Now, when you see that sign, do you think, well, Caltrans getting real preachy these days, right? Trying to tell me where I can go and what I can do. No, when you see a flashing sign that says, warning, bridge out ahead, you go, I'm glad they told me. When the God of the universe is trying to correct, correct your behavior, he's trying to transform the way you're walking or the things you're doing. If your response is like, how dare he? You're missing the point of the message, right? What you should respond with is, God cares enough about me to let me know the bridge is out ahead, right? To let me know this path is a dangerous one. But sometimes we miss the sign entirely. Sometimes we miss the sign entirely. And that happens for a couple of different reasons. Turn with me, if you will, uh, to Amos chapter 3. We're going to move around a little bit. But as one example of this, uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. It says, in the midst of this greater sort of proclamation, it says, The Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. What God is saying there is you're acting like you're surprised by this message, but I've sent you the message because I want you to know. I want you to be aware that I'm not happy with the way you're living. Now, what's interesting for us is that many times our response to God's correction is a response of ignorance. We're unaware that he's trying to get our attention because we're simply not paying attention to what he said. And if your radar is up right now and you're thinking he's about to tell us we need to read our Bibles, correct. That is what I'm about to tell you, right? It's funny how kind of a cliche, like you come to church and you expect that the pastor's going to say you should be reading your Bible. Can I tell you why you should, read, you should be reading your Bible? Not to please me, but because reading your Bible is a way to know what God has said. For most people, the way in which they're satisfied to sort of understand the voice of God is to listen to a guy like me, a fallible human interpreter and a fallible human preacher who sometimes gets it wrong and sometimes gets it right. And, and if you're content to just listen to my voice when it comes to understanding what God has said, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're putting too much faith in me. Does that make sense? You should be reading God's word. You should be reading the Bible in a variety of translations as we've been talking about recently because even the translators get it wrong sometimes, right? You should be reading God's word. Why? Don't you want to know what the flashing sign says? Don't you want to know what God is like? Don't you want to know what his expectation is? Don't you want to understand his character? Don't you want to understand what he's called you to? The best way to know what God is saying to you is to listen to what he said. And the clearest way to hear what God has said is to look at what he's revealed in his word, right? So that he says here, I've revealed all these things through the prophets. God's not sending prophets like Amos the way that he did in the Old Testament these days, right? The greatest prophet, it says in Hebrews, was the Lord Jesus. There's never going to be a better prophet than him, right? Jesus communicates some of these things. But for us, sometimes our response to God's correction is ignorance, and it's simply that we haven't taken the time to listen to what God has said. Now, similarly, what can happen sometimes is we're listening not to the voice of God, but we're listening to the voice of our fellow human beings. So flip back with me, if you will, to Amos 2.4. We looked at this last week, but let's look at it one more time just to kind of get the gist of it. This is in the judgment on Judah. The Lord says this, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And we talked about it briefly last week, but what he's talking about here when he, when he places this judgment on Judah is that they've set aside the word of God. Now, in their case, that's intentional. They've, they've rejected it. 
But many times in our case, we don't have the opportunity to intentionally reject the Word of God because long before we ever sort of came to the conclusion to reject the Word of God, we've just started listening to the words of human leaders, right? So what he says here is they've rejected the Word of God and what they've put in the place of my Word are their own lies. The lies that have sort of become canonized by their fathers. The generations before us did it this way and the generations before them did it this way. This is how they lived. This is how they looked at the world. This is how they treated other people and we're just going to do it like them. And so what they've started treating as the voice of God is the voice of man, which as we've already said, is busted. It's got flaws. It's got blind spots. It's got brokenness inherent in it. And he says, you've set aside my word and you've started listening to the words of each other, but the words of each other are false, right? And he condemns them for that. Well, well, in some cases, you might be someone in the room who responds to the correction of God with ignorance. And it's not that you're not interested in what God has said, but maybe you think that what people are saying in God's name is the same thing as what God has said. Does that make sense? And there are lots of people in this world, lots of people on the internet, lots of people on the news, lots of people all over the place who are saying things in God's name that have nothing to do with the heart of Jesus. So it's possible this morning that you've not heard the correction of God and that you think your religious illusion is perfectly satisfactory because you've listened to some pundit or you've listened to some talking head on YouTube tell you that the way you're living is acceptable and what you have to do is come back to what God has said in his word. Does that make sense? To correct that illusion. So here they're condemned for that. It's worth noting too that in Amos 6, 1, uh, which we looked at last week also, he speaks directly to leaders because leaders are accountable for this. So he says in 6.1, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. He's, he's looking specifically at the notable men of Israel, recognizing that there are people coming to them for answers and the answers they're giving them are, you should be at ease and you should be comfortable because the religious illusion that you're maintaining is perfectly great. Right? He says, be careful, because it's, it's the notable men that people are coming to that are at ease, and they're leading other people down that same path. Sometimes we respond uh, with ignorance. Sometimes that happens because we just don't know what God has said. Sometimes because we're listening to the wrong voices. And many times it's because we're not paying attention to God's example. I've already said this, but in Amos chapter 2, verse 10, God says, he's already said, you aren't, you aren't treating other people the way I've treated you. He says in Amos 2.10, Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? He says, look, you're not behaving towards each other the way I behave toward you. We talked last week, how many of you are thankful for the grace of God and the mercy of God, the patience of God, the forgiveness of God, the goodness of God? We've all been recipients of that. And yet we fail to be replicators of it in the lives of our fellow men and women, right? He's saying, I've set you a model and you haven't paid attention to it. So that, that's ignorance still, right? It's possible that God's trying to get your attention with a flashing sign that says, warning, bridge out ahead. And you're fiddling with the radio or you're looking out the other window and you've missed what God has said. And so there is a call for us in the book of Amos to come back and know what God is saying, right? Now, secondly, and it's similar but not exactly the same, I would say there's sometimes ignorance in our lives when God tries to correct us. Secondly, sometimes there's ambivalence. And ambivalence is different than ignorance, right? Ignorance is when you're unaware of what God has said. Ambivalence, differently, is when you know very well what God has said and you don't care, right? When you know what God has said and you don't care. It's ama- you'd be amazed, I think. Maybe not. 
How many times I have conversations with people who are asking me about their lives, their conduct and their character. Sometimes there's a sin issue in their life and I'll sit down with them and they'll say, well, this is what I'm doing with my life. And I'll say, well, you know, the Bible says that's wrong. It's wrong to be greedy or it's wrong to treat other people this way or it's wrong to be sexually active outside of marriage or whatever. And I can say these things point blank to people and they go, oh, no, no, I know that's what the Bible says, but, th- but this is what I'm going to do, right? So there's, it's not that they're ignorant of what God has said. It's that they've said, well, I, I know what God has said, but this is, I, I, this is the way I'm going to do it, right? It's an ambivalence about the voice of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Amos chapter 4. In Amos chapter 4, verse 6 and following, God says, I've been trying to get your attention, and you can't have missed it. You just don't care. Amos 4, verse 6 says, and this is God speaking. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. By the way, cleanness of teeth, that might sound like something really good. Like, oh, I wish God would give me cleanness of teeth. He's not saying something nice. Uh, What he's saying is you haven't had any meat stuck in your teeth because you haven't had any meat, right? So he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I tried to get your attention with famine and you ignored me. I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain on the field on which it would, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. He says, I sent famine. He says, I played with the, with the water table, right? I made it rain in some places and then rain in other places. I was very arbitrary about it, trying to get your attention. And still you didn't come back to me. Nine, he says, I struck you with blight and mildew and many, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you. So when God overthrew, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He says, I've done all these things to get your attention, and I know you haven't missed them. You've seen them all, and yet you didn't come back. Well, what is that? It's not ignorance. They're aware of what God did, but they just wanted to do their own thing. Think again of the flashing sign on the highway, right? Flashing sign says, bridge out ahead, warning, bridge out ahead. And you see the sign, and you acknowledge it. Oh, yeah, bridge out ahead, but that's where I want to go. And you just try to drive off the cliff. Now, when you put it in those terms, it doesn't make any sense, right? Why would, you, why would you ignore that sign? It's been put there for your good and for your safety. And yet in our lives, we see the sign, we know what it says, we understand the ramifications, and we just keep driving. We just keep driving. People who go, oh, no, I know what God has said. I just kind of want to do my own thing. So we see ignorance sometimes in our lives. We see ambivalence in our lives. People, like it says in 6.1, who are at ease and secure and feeling like they, they're fine the way they are. And the last thing we see, ignorance, ambivalence, and thirdly, arrogance. Arrogance. And that, that's different than the first two in that it isn't just not knowing what God has said or even knowing what God has said and deciding to do something different. It's knowing what God has said and deciding that your way of doing things is better. Deciding that your way of doing things is better. Like, I know what God has said. He's wrong about that. I know what God has said. He won't punish us. I know what God has said. My false religion is the only thing that brings me comfort, and I'm not turning loose of it. I know that he's called me to care for the poor. I know that he's called for me to lay down my my own whims for the good of other people. I know that he's called me to set aside my pride and my arrogance and my gluttony and all these things, and I'm going to do what I want to do. 
There's an arrogance that comes. We see that in the book of Amos as well. In, uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, interestingly, it says uh, of the people, he's just said, I raised up Nazarites and I raised up prophets. Verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. It's very interesting. This isn't ambivalence. This is them going, hey, you know what? The Nazarites are supposed to take a vow not to consume any alcohol, but our rule is they drink, Right? And God has sent the prophets to declare to us the truth. But our rule is the prophets shush, right? He's like, that's not just ignoring me. That's, that's commanding people to do the opposite of what I've said. No, no, there's an arrogance there. Chapter 5 of Amos verse 10 says of the people of Israel, they hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Sometimes this arrogance is coupled with an anger. An anger, right? You see that flashing sign on the side of the road and it says warning bridge out ahead. And you go, who does Caltrans think they are to tell me what to do? If I want to drive off a bridge, I'm going to drive off a bridge. And you pedal to the metal, go off the cliff, right? To what to prove a point that you're in charge to your own destruction. Sometimes we get angry. We shake our fist at God when he's just, he's trying to show us the life he built us for. He says here, they hate the one who reproves in the great. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Turn with me, if you will, to Amos chapter 7, verse 10. In the midst of the visions of judgment that we see in the last three chapters, there's a little bit of a, of a narrative break. And there's an interaction between a guy named Amaziah, the prophet of Bethel, uh, and Amos. Remember, Amos has been proclaiming this judgment because the people have missed the heart of God. Now Amaziah does this. This is Amos 7, 10. It says, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Right? Now this is very interesting. The prophet of God declares the truth as God had revealed it to him. And what happens? Well, the prophet Amos is misrepresented and undermined in front of the king. Amaziah doesn't go to Amos at first. Amaziah goes to Jeroboam the second and says, hey, we got to do something about this Amos character because he's trying to get you killed. He has all kinds of terrible things to say about you. Now, for what it's worth, the characterization of Amos that Amaziah puts forth is not true or accurate. This is fairly standard stuff, right, with prophets. When a prophet says something you don't like, when someone says something that you don't want to uh, apply to your own life or you don't want to take into your own life and respond to, then the thing to do is to pull the rug out from underneath the prophet, right? To find a way to dismiss or to undermine his character or to accuse him of things that he hasn't actually done. All of that happens to Amos here. Amaziah says, you know what? The prophet Amos is trying to kill you, Jeroboam. And that's not strictly true. It's a mischaracterization. What I love then next is that uh, Amos, Amaziah goes to Amos in verse 12, finally. And he says... O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. He says, we got good religious things going on here. So what you should do is go back to your land. What's he doing? He's trying to tempt him. Amaziah tries to tempt Amos and says, instead of declaring this message that nobody likes, why don't you go back to your own place where people like you and there's plenty to eat and you're not going to be so disruptive. Everybody will just get along. How about that, right? The prophet of God will always be tempted by comfort and approval, right? And yet Amos doesn't succumb to that temptation. What Amos does instead is he points at his calling. So look at this in verse 14. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Um, but the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel, right? 
I love this response. Amaziah says, hey, you're persecuting us. You should go back to your own country where people like you and they'll feed you and you'll be happy, right? And Amos goes, I, I don't, I mean, I don't, that's not really what I'm doing. I'm just a shepherd. Like, I'm not trying to cause any trouble, but I can't go back to where I'm from because while I don't have the qualifications that maybe you want, and maybe my resume doesn't look the way you want, I'm just a shepherd. I know how to grow figs, but what I do know is this, God called me to come and give this message. Rather than resting on his resume, he rests on the calling of God. I will remind you that when you're trying to put Jesus on display in this world, when you're trying to live a life of sacrifice and love and generosity and kindness and compassion, there are going to be times where people will tell you to pack up your bags and go back where you came from. And in those moments, you will be tempted to go away from the message that God has called you to because going away from the message that God has called you to will be easier for you, more comfortable. Don't do it. Remember what God has called you to. Remember what God has called you to. Calling trumps comfort every time, right? Calling trumps comfort every time. Amos says, I can't go anywhere because God told me to come here. Now, interestingly too, in this particular case, if you were to ask Amaziah and Amos separately and talk to them, they would both say, I'm being persecuted, right? Amaziah feels persecuted by Amos and Amos feels persecuted by Amaziah. It's interesting how often that still happens today in Christian circles. You get two different people who both feel like the opposite one is persecuting them. When you want to try and figure out where the real persecution lies, look at the heart of Jesus. Amos's heart is aligned with the heart of Christ and with the heart of God, a heart of compassion and a heart of love. The heart of Amaziah is aligned with maintaining religious facade, maintaining religious illusion, and pedal to the metal heading on where the bridge is out. You want to figure out who's actually being persecuted in that particular case? It's the one whose heart aligns with God. In these moments in your life where someone comes alongside you and says, hey, I don't think the way you're treating your wife is appropriate. I don't think the way you're spending your money is appropriate. I don't think the way you talk to those other people is appropriate. When you've got other people who come alongside you and they rebuke you or they challenge your conduct or your character, you will be tempted to go, oh, I'm being, I'm being persecuted. I'm being oppressed. Check your heart and figure out whether you're aligned with the heart of Jesus because it's possible that there is no oppression, that there is no persecution, but that rather you've gotten off the right path and you need to be realigned and that God is sending you a flashing sign to say your conduct among other people is not fitting with who I am. And there's correction on your part that needs to be made, right? The reality is that if we treat the correction of God with ignorance or ambivalence or with arrogance, sooner or later there's a real danger. And the danger is that we can come to what Amos calls a famine of the hearing of the word of God. Look at Amos 8.11. Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You guys, you don't have to be scared of the wrath of God. You know, fire falling from heaven and locusts eating your fields. But I do want you to be adequately and appropriately scared of Amos 8.11. I want you to feel the weight and the fear of what can happen. If you, if you are ambivalent or arrogant or ignorant of, of the correction of God, if you turn a deaf ear to his voice trying to nudge you back on the right path again and again and again, the reality is that there is a day coming when you will no longer be able to hear his voice. When that spirit of conviction that you currently feel will go away and you will no longer be feeling convicted for things that used to make you very convicted, right? When people will stop saying to you, I don't really like the way you're treating your wife, that voice will dry up 
and you won't think about it anymore. What God says is that if you reject my correction again and again and again, there is a famine that can come, not of bread or of water, but a famine of being able to hear my voice. We should be afraid of that. And instead of being ambivalent or ignorant or arrogant when God tries to correct us, we should instead be humble and, and honest and open about our failings and about our, about our misunderstandings and about our brokenness, right? God is gracious, and that's good news for us. God is gracious, and he is relenting in his visions here in, in 7, 8, and 9. Not only that, in the passage we read at the beginning, we see that it is God's plan, as is typical with God, to not utterly wipe out the people of God, but rather to restore them, right? So in those last verses we read at the very beginning, chapter 9 at the end, he talks about wine flowing and the broken down cities being rebuilt. God preserves a remnant. And for us, that remnant today is those of us who are followers of Jesus, right? There is a foreshadowing there of the fact that he will not destroy us, but he will redeem us. And yet, in the midst of that redemption, we have the opportunity to live the life that God built us for, and that requires a willingness and a humility to be corrected. There's a danger for us that we will become ignorant or ambivalent or arrogant about our sin, that we'll convince ourselves that our religious illusion matters and that the most important thing for us is to maintain it. But what Amos tells us, and this is the second major theme of the book of Amos, God says that religious illusion isn't doing you any favors. Ditch it. You don't need it. It's not doing you any good. Because as long as you're working hard to maintain that mask, we're never dealing with what's on hap- happening on your actual face. So take it away. You don't need it. Nobody else needs one either. Be a community of my people who can be honest about the fact that sometimes they don't get it right. Sometimes they make mistakes. Repent of it and he will heal and transform it. Repent, by the way, is a scary word for us. We get scared of repentance because it sounds kind of uh, hellfire and brimstoney. But remember, the message of repentance was core, like a hallmark of Jesus' message. As is summarized by all four of the gospel writers in one place or another, Jesus' message was, hey, the kingdom is available, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. And you can live there if you repent. If you repent, well, what's repent means? It means just turn loose of your illusion. Turn loose of your facade. Turn away from the kingdom where you're in charge and admit you don't know what you're doing, right? Be honest about that and you can live in the kingdom of God where actual transformation and real healing and restoration can occur. I want to finish by just looking at one last passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 talks about God's discipline. And there's stuff in here about sonship. None of that is gender specific. So if you're a woman in the room, that's daughtership as well. Here's what it says in Hebrews 12, 5 and following. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, by the way, lameness is implied for everyone, so that what is lame, as a matter of fact, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. 
Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Right? God is saying there are a couple of different ways you can respond to my correction. Maybe you're just ignoring it. Maybe you've heard what I have to say and, and you've decided to do your own thing. Or maybe you've heard my correction and you've decided to shake your fist and pedal to the metal, go the way you want to go in your arrogance. But there is another way to respond to the correction of God, according to Hebrews. And the way to respond to correction of God that is appropriate is to say, oh, God's showing me that he loves me. <laughs> right? Oh, I'm actually a daughter of the Lord. If I'm being, it says in Hebrews 12 that the evidence of your adoption is your father's correction. What that means is that if you've never been corrected by your father, if you've never felt his correcting hand, one of two things. You could be in a famine of hearing the word of God and you need to repent and confess. That's a dangerous place to be. Or you might not be a child of God. You might not be a follower of God. You're made in his image, but you might never have, have turned from your sin and turned to Christ to be redeemed. Because what it says in Hebrews 12 is that if you have been uh, redeemed by God, you are his daughter, you are his son, and he corrects those he loves. What that means is that when God tries to nudge us on the path, rather than ignoring, rather than, you know, doing our own thing, rather than shaking our fist in anger, we can say, oh, God's showing me that he loves me. He's changing and transforming me. And all I have to do is take off the mask, reject my religious illusions so that we can actually get to work on the thing that's going on in reality, inside me. That is what God calls the people of Amos to, and they miss it again and again. He says, I did all these things, and you wouldn't come back. You set up your own rules. You did things your own way. And the reality is, this is where it brought you. I pray that we will be a church, a maskless church, right? A facadeless church, a church where we can be comfortable to go, I get some things right, and I get some things wrong. I'm paying close attention to what God has said so that I understand how it is that he's trying to shape me into the image of his son, both to be a people with, a, with a, a, I think, a robust religious practice, but a religious practice that is not disconnected from care and concern for my fellow women and men. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it calls us to repentance, for the way in which you nudge us as an indication of our daughtership and our sonship, God, will you help us to be people who are not ignorant of your voice, who are not ambivalent about what you've said, people who are not arrogant to think we know better. And instead, God, would you call us to be people of honesty and vulnerability, humility, who can say, yep, you know what, God, I did that wrong. I handled that poorly. I misrepresented you. And that in our turning and repenting, God, then there's the opportunity for us to see your transformative power at work in the reality of who we are. Make us a maskless church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.